This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast, our first episode recorded in 2019. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and as always my co-host on this podcast is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Now, today's date is the 15th of February, and to no one's surprise, a lot has been happening in the realm of international affairs already this year in 2019. But for today's episode, we are not going to do our usual thing and cover the news of the week. There will be plenty of time to catch up on on that in the weeks ahead. Instead, we're going to use today's opportunity or the opportunity provided by the new year to look back at the events of 2018 from a big picture, more of a macro perspective, and briefly look forward to what we're expecting for 2019. But before we begin, a few programming notes. Uh, Alan and I may each sound a bit different uh, in many of our podcasts this year, um, which is because most of the episodes we'll record this year will be done with us in different locations. So we apologise for that and we thank you for your patience as we try to get the hang of this new technical challenge. And second, if you are a new listener, please check out some of our earlier podcast episodes, especially the two most recent ones, which were interviews with Dennis Richardson and with Danielle Cave and Tom Uren of Aspie. And third, I remind you that we have our dedicated email address, australia.world.pod at gmail.com, and we invite you to email us with topics you'd like to hear discussed or specific questions for either or both of us to answer. All right, let's get started. So to begin, Alan, in the social sciences, one particular way uh, of thinking about the world is known as Bayesian analysis, which is named after an 18th century mathematician, Thomas Bayes. And the basic idea is that we have a set of beliefs about the world and how it works and the things that matter but that these beliefs should be updated or improved as new information comes to light. And as we update our beliefs about the world, we change our understandings about how things work and, most importantly, our predictions regarding what might happen in the future and what to do about it. So, Alan, if we begin today's podcast with a look back at 2018, I want to do it through this Bayesian lens. What happened during the year that may have altered your prior beliefs about how the world works? Well, look, I, th- I think we will look back on 2018 as a pivotal year, as a real um, step change uh, in that the only international order I've known during my lifetime, and that was the liberal post-war international order, uh, came to an end. We'd seen the beginning of that in 2017 with the Brexit vote and Trump's election and she's Uh, backing away from China's hide-and-bide policy. But 2018, I think, was the year that we recognised that things weren't going to go back to what we'd had in the past. So for me, it was bigger than the other great systemic changes of of the late 20th century and early 21st century, the end of the Cold War and the consequences of the 9 11 attacks. But in terms of surprise uh, and the sort of test of my uh, my assumptions, I think it was the speed with which the international system 
uh, move towards a new sort of bipolarity with China on the one side and the US and its allies um, to various degrees at any rate on the other, despite the fact that the outward fundamentals uh, weren't changing much at all. Can I focus on this notion of speed? Is what you're saying that your prior belief was that international orders change slowly, other than through war, I suppose, but that 2018 has shown that particular belief to be false. So could you unpack that idea a bit more? What was wrong, um, if you will, this is how I would think about it, what was wrong with your old model of, of how orders are constituted and how they change that could not accommodate the events of 2018? Look, it's a hard question because like most practitioners, I don't think of myself as having a model, but like most academics, you're right when you tell us that we just don't recognise and acknowledge the models that we have. Um, anyway, it's, it's clear that orders can change quickly when wars end or slowly as new big powers emerged. Uh, and I so I suppose it was the speed this time, the rapidity with which globalisation could come undone when it no longer served the particular geopolitical interests of big powers. I guess I'd assumed uh, not that globalisation was forever, but that the structural constraints it imposed on states were stronger than I think they've uh, proved to be. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, if I can offer my two cents on this topic... Uh, the major area that I've been probing my prior beliefs or assumptions is the relationship between political elites and leaders on, on one side and mass publics on the other, uh, moderated through political institutions and what this might mean for international relations and international order orders in particular. And I think it's related to your point, uh, particularly with respect to the impact of globalisation, because I think my error... Uh, was a failure to appreciate uh, how chaotic and, frankly, unstable small-D democratic politics can be. You know, events like Trump's election, uh, the Brexit vote, uh, Brazil's recent election last year do happen uh, that surprise us. And foolish policy decisions uh, can be implemented, at least decisions that I think are foolish. And for me, the question is about time horizons. How much irreversible damage can be done before the pendulum swings back? In the case of you know, a regime like Nazi Germany, clearly a lot of damage, a century-defining amount of damage can be done in the form of war. But is that the case here? And this is where my focus um, hones in on institutions. Because when they are operating well, they can moderate the impacts of the wildest swings of democracy. So I was quite heartened, for example, by the results of the US midterms last year, um, the ongoing failure of Theresa May's government to get a Brexit deal through Parliament. And I was also heartened by election results closer to home in places like Malaysia and the Maldives, which demonstrated, I think, that the political influence of Chinese financing is not absolute and that democratic polities will push back. So all these events actually confirm other prize I have uh, that terrible policy ideas um, and inept political leadership, in Trump's case in particular, do not endure. Now, of course, this is all hypothetical. Trump could decide he wants to pull out of NATO um, and Russia could respond by annexing the Baltic states. And then, yes, of course, uh, in a very short space of time, significant damage could be done. 
Also, a, a hard Brexit could happen. Uh, it's increasingly likely, I think, uh, next month. And the UK economy could be pushed into a deep depression. Scotland could secede. Northern Ireland could return to its former period of troubles. Again, significant damage. But right now, I feel optimistic. And I think that a lot of the hand-wringing that policymakers and pundits are doing is more about dark clouds on the horizon rather than the weather already being here and we're seeing flooding or a tsunami. Alan, can you shake me out of my optimism? Do you want to shake me out of my optimism? Uh, no, I don't want to shake you out of your uh, optimism. <laughs> uh, Darren, I, I'll cling to that as well. I remain sort of optimistic, but with uh, increasing anxiety Institutions are important, and I do think that the United States will return to something more normal after Trump. Brexit, though, is different. Um, that's a large structural change, and I think your um, your optimism on that is probably misplaced. But my uh, my central belief is that whatever comes next, it's not going to be a return to what we had before. You could be right about NATO, uh, but I'm not sure about some of the other decisions that Trump's made. There are some things that you simply can't get back once they've uh, been done. So I think you may be a, a, a bit too complacent. Okay, well, let's refocus this uh, conversation on Australia and our place in the world and whether or not the past year has changed any of our beliefs about our place in the world. From an Australian perspective, what was the most consequential and or interesting policy decision made by our government in 2018? Is there something that we did or didn't do that will reverberate in 2019 and beyond? Look, I think given that so much Australian political energy in 2018 was focused in inwardly, it's hard to see much that was either consequential or uh, interesting. The problem was that, or one of the problems was that our other major partners, most consequentially the US and the UK, were also self-absorbed. I think the direction last year had been set the year before in the 2017 foreign policy white paper, and that continued, and that was that was good. There was this uh, new focus on the Pacific and new attention paid to China. We got a new prime minister and new ministers in the key international portfolios, but it's hard to see real differences in the policy direction. I don't think it changed much about my view of Australia in the world, but it did reinforce my view that we're going to have to take much more responsibility for charting our own uh, future and that our interests are going to align differently from those of the US as we try to manage China. Looking back on last year, we, we tried to, or the government tried to refocus the relationship on Southeast Asia through the ASEAN summit in Sydney. But I think they began, and we all began to recognise the difficulties involved in a Southeast Asia, which doesn't look the way it looked in the past. Uh, as I said, we, we went through one of our periodic rediscoveries of the South Pacific, and that's always a good thing to do. But but it, it's also an uphill battle there. Um, the Prime Minister Morrison's visit to Vanuatu and Fiji last month was a good start, and he practised on a whole lot of uh, – he focused, rather, on a whole lot of very practical issues. But differences of view over climate change remain an impediment for us in the in the Pacific I, I think if 
I had to summarize it, I'd, I'd say that given the gravity of the challenges to the international order, the central message from 2018 was that Australia didn't rise to the occasion. Um, just last week, Scott Morrison made a speech at the National Press Club called Our Plan for Keeping Australia Safe and Secure. So I sort of read about that. I heard the news on the radio and I thought, that's a good thing. Uh, and I picked it up enthusiastically. Now, I'd always uh, thought that Kevin Rudd's uh, 2008 national security statement would hold the record for the broadest definition by an Australian government of national security. Um, he included sort of climate change and natural disasters. But Scott Morrison has taken the prize, I think, because he went even further in adding, adding issues like violence against women, uh, the scourge of ice and cyber bullying. Those are all important uh, problems. I've got no doubt of that, and governments need to address them. But the sort of strange thing about the speech was that there was no link at all uh, with the $200 billion investment in submarines, fighters and frigates that um, Morrison went on to extol. So what was what's all that about? Why are we spending that money? It was impossible to know from the speech. The word China doesn't appear. And all we're warned about is that um, regional tensions between the world's great uh, powers are uh, increasing. So m my point in all this is not to have a go at, uh, at the speech so much as to say that given the stakes involved in the world we're now in, we need to be doing a lot better than this at articulating to ourselves and to the Australian people what's going on. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I do, I, I do see a strong, you know, pry belief, a Bayesian belief in there, Alan, that I want to pick up on, um, and that's the idea that we really could have risen to the occasion, that that the government could have done a lot more. Um, you know, you talk about improved articulation and, and, and you criticise the, the Morrison speech for sort of perhaps missing the point or, or avoiding some of the harder questions. But I'm wondering, were, were there concrete steps available to the government uh, within the ordinary constraints of domestic politics, so we couldn't triple our aid budget, for example, that the government should have taken? You know, I look back at these same events uh, and even, I suppose, Morrison's speech and I see a government and a prime minister muddling through, you know, trying to balance the fact that the White House is occupied by an individual in whom we have zero confidence with the fact that we have no good alternatives to our military alliance with the US and trying to balance those facts uh, against the need to have a positive relationship with China for our own economic interests, but also for our positive vision for the region, with the fact that in many areas of core importance, our interests and our values are fundamentally divergent with Beijing, um, and that China has been doing with increasing regularity actions that we have found scary. And that's just the US and China. So I see foreign policies and a foreign policy landscape defined by almost impossible trade-offs and the only way forward is is to muddle through. And so I wonder if, if we if we put some of the giants of Australian foreign policy from previous decades past into the shoes of our leaders today with the same set of constraints, you know, could they be doing much better? So my prior on this is is really unchanged. That on the biggest questions of Australian foreign policy, 
You know, we can shape our external environment when the seas are calm, to continue this storm metaphor. But when things get rough, we have to batten down the hatches and ride it out, and perhaps using a pail vigorously to, to, to pail out the water and hope the ship holds together. Am I being too forgiving? Oh, Darren, <laughs> yeah, too forgiving of us? You, you bet, you bet. Look, that, you know, what you've described is a recipe for complacency and laziness, if ever I, I heard one. I mean, un, underneath what you were saying is this sort of image of poor little Australia pottering around the margins of the big world when times are good, but condemned, in your words, to muddle through, batten down the hatches, keep our heads down when the world looks hard. Uh, I don't buy that. I think that we can do more. I think we desperately need to do more. And as we talked about last year and several of the podcasts, there are obvious things that we could have done better, including in uh, consistent messaging to China. I want to stay on this for a minute. Better often will mean more costly. You know, if we take a stronger, more articulate view um, take on, on China, um, isn't there a danger that, that that will invite retaliation or have some other economic or diplomatic cost? And so we obviously don't want to do the opposite by selling out our values. Um, and so the solution is to maintain sort of a quiet policy line, um, but then in our messaging, you know, essentially fudge it, you know, focus on cyberbullying and, 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 and whatnot as, as matters of national security in order not to pay those costs. You know, are the, you know, are, where do you see that cost-benefit calculus here, Alan? Because it just feels like the more strident we are in articulating ourselves, the more we open ourselves up, you know, to retaliation, when at the end of the day, our policy settings are not really changing very much. I, I'm struggling with this, but I just, I see, you know, a minefield ahead, and it doesn't surprise me that the, <laughs> the our leaders want to put their heads in the sand and not, and not move. Well, uh, that may be the where our leaders want to be, but uh, if there are minds ahead, um, that's not a good strategy to to deal with them. the The problem I had with the way you just described it really was that you seemed to think that stridency was the alternative to keeping your heads down, whereas I think that uh, skillful diplomacy in all its uh, forms, including working working with others. Uh, subtly trying to change behaviour, being direct where we uh, need to be direct without being offensive. I think there's a whole range of things that are not encompassed in your, uh, in, the, in the view that you were just expressing. I think maybe the challenge is that uh, for China in particular, they interpret measured but perhaps you know, firm diplomacy as stridency. The Chinese government is very sensitive, the Chinese um, state-run press is very sensitive and does react quite forcefully um, uh, in, in ways that, that other you know, governments and policy um, communities can find quite intimidating. And that might be the challenge, that, that even that measured diplomacy... And we're talking, I think, we're debating about public messaging here. We're not debating, disagreeing, I don't think, about actual policy choices. Um, that that, that, that it, it is very, very hard that, that speaking... The way we could speak to our friends, you know, if we had disagreements... Um, is invites or seems to trigger such firm responses um, from the Chinese side. I think that's sometimes true. I don't think it's. Uh, I don't think it's always true, and it depends entirely on uh, on how you do it and how consistent you are 
in the messages you're sending, not only to China, uh, but to uh, other countries uh, as well. Okay, well, let's look forward briefly then to 2019. Um, And I've got two questions I wanted to ask you to answer as if you were providing advice to Australia's leaders. The first is, what is one major challenge that you will need to prepare for? Well, I think the answer is uh, clear from the discussion we've already ha- had. Everything, everything that sort of uh, sort of focuses in, doesn't it, on the nature of the U.S.-China relationship and Australia's uh, response to it. As I've said, the speed with which we've been moving back into a new bipolar world is much quicker than I expected. I mean, just going back again to the need for us to articulate things uh, more clearly. Uh, Scott Morrison was again saying during his South Pacific uh, visit that we don't have to choose between um, the United States and uh, and China, but that's sort of sounding less uh, persuasive by the day. So I would be saying to the Prime Minister, who, who, whoever it is, the important thing is to is for us to articulate uh, clearly to ourselves and our partners our our, uh, position on these issues. And of course, our partners are also facing similar situations and similar challenges. You know, I think of the Canadian arrest of a Huawei executive uh, late last year. I think of issues between New Zealand and China at the moment. There's trouble in that bilateral relationship. Is there anything that we can learn from their experiences to help us, you know, guide our own uh, policy course throughout this year? I, I think there's an awful lot we can learn and I suspect that uh, that our um, you know foreign affairs and trade officials are learning it uh, by the day. You know we've seen what's happened in uh, uh, Canada. We've seen, we're seeing similar sort of pressures in New Zealand uh, at the moment. So yeah, there's an awful lot to be to be gained by uh, by comparing and uh, and contrasting, the, but the issue always in diplomacy is that situations don't emerge in the same way uh, over again. Each time it will be uh, uh, slightly different, and and that's why why we need the uh, best possible uh, advisors and um, and diplomats around. Okay, well, if we try to step away from the U.S.-China to vortex for a minute, my second question was. Do you see any areas of Australian foreign policy that are getting insufficient attention and for which you think there is significant potential for Australia to benefit and to add value? Yeah, look, I mentioned um, Southeast Asia uh, before. Uh, we, you know, we tried with the, um, the ASEAN uh, summit uh, last year. Uh, I think Southeast Asia is becoming more difficult uh, by the day and that's an area that we're going to have to focus uh, very firmly on. Uh, Indonesia is the partner that matters most to us. And although, you know, most of the current indications are that uh, President uh, Jokowi will win the election in April, a huge effort on policy is going to be needed uh, after that. And I think it's, I was saying before that we need good uh, diplomats, and I think it's very lucky that we've got one of our very best uh, there as ambassador in uh, Gary Quinlan. I think uh, another area that I'd, I'd note, though, is multilateralism generally, and it, it's in all, under pressure in all sorts of ways that we've talked about on this podcast before. There's only a limited amount that a country like Australia can do to reshape great power relations, but we do have more options working together with other like-minded uh, middle powers 
like us, and by middle powers, I really just mean those countries which are large enough to have global interests and some diplomatic capacity, but also need and benefit from all the advantages of a rules-based order which multilateralism provides. And so we can do more, I think, with peacekeeping, uh, peacemaking, with arms control, uh, trade policy uh, reform. But let me switch the uh, the question. What would your priority be, Darren? I, I, I'm still stuck, I think, in the, in the US-China vortex when I think about priorities for, for 2019. Uh, and I think to pick up on what our discussion a few moments ago about what we can learn from you know, the experience of, experiences of our partners. Um, I, while I accept that every situation is, is a bit different, there are sufficient similarities, I think, in the questions and the trade-offs um, that countries like Canada and New Zealand, Germany, the UK, as well as the United States, um, there are similar, uh, sufficient similarities in, um, in, in areas like M&A activity, um, from Chinese firms, trade policy with China, technology provision by Chinese providers like Huawei, um, China's efforts via its United Front Work Department to pursue its political interests. And so I don't obviously know how much discussion and collaboration goes on behind the scenes, but I see a great potential for Australia to work multilaterally um, with like-minded partners. And you could even leave the US out of this if you wanted to. Uh, to develop frameworks for balancing these trade-offs, you know, to develop a coherent set of policies that welcome China and Chinese actors into a rules-based system, but insist upon reciprocity and transparency, perhaps even cordiality, um, with a clear set of guidelines for the conditions under which cooperation is welcomed um, and when and when pushback is needed. Do you have any particular thoughts on the potential for cooperation uh, in this field? Alan? Well, as I said uh, before, I think we're seeing uh, a lot of that going on already on issues like um, 5G and and uh, so on. Uh, I think that what you said uh, would be really lovely if we could uh, if we could do that. Uh, I think we can insist on reciprocity uh, to a to a degree. Reciprocity always depends on the power relationship between uh, the two states. So, but reciprocity is not a not a problem. But you wanted transparency and cordiality uh, as well. And what what we may like both transparency uh, and uh, cordiality. It's not something uh, that international relations history suggests that you're ever going to be able to insist on. Okay. Well, finally, what's one other aspect of Australia in the world that you would recommend? to our listeners as a story or a trend worth following? Perhaps potential research topics, essay topics for undergraduate or postgraduate students, relevant matters for professionals engaged internationally, or perhaps just savvy listeners who are looking to make intelligent dinner party conversation? Um, science and technology, I think, are going to be a central part of the coming contest, and anyone who wants to understand international relations is going to need higher levels of scientific and uh, technological literacy than perhaps was necessary in the you know, 1990s. Um, during the Cold War, competition between the West and the Soviet Union focused mostly on nuclear and missile technology. It had no, you know, there was no broader economic dimension to it. But the competition between China and the US is shaping up as a whole of technology contest in which all the emerging areas of 
uh, name them really, um, is cyber, artificial intelligence, materials, uh, technology, biotech. All of these are going to have some sort of dual use capabilities. Uh, so what, what does that mean for the global economy? What does it mean for the sort of development models that are now available to developing countries, including our own Southeast Asian neighbours? I saw recently US uh, congressional leaders expressing concern about Chinese exports of solar panels to the US on the ground that they could be used to threaten US infrastructure. If we're in that sort of world, it's shaping up as a real challenge um, uh, for all of us, but uh, for Australia in particular. Uh, so there are security, commercial, environmental, ethical dimensions which, which require careful, uh, reflective um, input and not just sloganeering. But my point really is that the debate needs to rest on solid scientific uh, understanding and and of course that's obviously true of things like climate change and the environment as well uh, so uh, what about you uh, what, what what would your answer be well for me it's not strictly to do with Australia and the world but uh, it you know you mentioned the political the security technological I would add the social uh, and in particular the role of social media in our lives and how it then in turn affects our politics I do sense perhaps the approach of a tipping point that consumers in the West um, are beginning to question how ubiquitous um, and how potentially harmful social media is um, on an individual level, um, but not only how it affects you know, us individually, but how it also affects what Tom Uren of Aspie called the public square when we interviewed him a few episodes ago. You know, whether it's questions about whether our kids should have smartphones, to how Facebook should regulate political speech, uh, to foreign government interference in elections. It feels like the landscape in which technology, politics and individual welfare intersect is undergoing significant change uh, and may see major policy changes such as you know, greatly scaled up regulation in the near future. So that's that's something that I'm paying particular attention well, to. Well, as you know, Darren, I'm a conscientious objector to social media, so I'm really glad <laughs> to hear that. Okay, well, let's wrap up um, with our final segment, which is reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching? Well, I, I read quite a lot over the uh, over the break, which was, which was terrific. But uh, one book I really enjoyed and recommend was... Uh, called A World on Edge, The End of the Great War and the Dawn of a New Age by a German historian called Daniel, uh, I hope I've got the pronunciation right, Schoenflug. Uh, it was recently translated into uh, English and uh, Schoenflug tells the story of that um, astonishing period of chaos and hope from 1918, a um, hundred years ago, to 1920 through a series of uh, a personal stories. So it's really highly readable. The characters he brings in range from the central political figures like Crown Prince Wilhelm of Prussia and Marshal Foch through revolutionaries and reactionaries to the experiences of just ordinary demobilised American and uh, German soldiers. And he's particularly good uh, at bringing in the impact of these developments on writers and artists like um, Virginia Woolf and Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, I like 
the fact that it was written by by a German. So there's a sort of a, a point of view is uh, is slightly different from the histories I normally read, and it takes a a global view, um, incorporating people like Gandhi and uh, Ho Chi Minh. So it was a reminder of what the world feels like when you don't really know what's going on. And that makes it very relevant to current contemporary times. Darren, what are yours? Moving, um, as we recently have, has not given me a lot of time to do much reading or watching, but I have continued with my podcast listening. And one of my favourites at the moment is a relatively new podcast coming out of the New York Times. I'm sure many of our listeners know of their daily podcast called The Daily but there's a new one which is called The Argument, uh, in which three of their opinion writers, um, David Leonhardt, uh, Michelle Goldberg and, and Ross Douthat, um, who sort of span the ideological spectrum, um, they debate you know, policy issues and social issues of the day. And while, yes, it has a major US focus, it's, it, it is nice to hear sort of a liberal perspective and a conservative perspective articulated uh, quite clearly in, in, in a good-natured you know, in, but intelligent way. Uh, so that's The Argument from The New York Times, uh, a relatively new podcast that I would recommend. Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank our outgoing AAA interns, Stephanie Rowell and Manny Bavell, for their outstanding help in getting the podcast up and running this year. And we also want to welcome Charles Henshaw, who will be stepping in to help us out over the next few months. Rory Stenning composed our theme music. That's all, and talk to you again soon. Thank <laughs> you.